From M4D Insider, I'm Arunjay Katakam, and this is M4D Insider News. Welcome to episode five. We're coming to you from London and Toronto. I'm joined by my co-host, Janet Shulis. How are you, Janet? I'm great. Thanks, Arunjay. Great. Well, let's get us started. So the Center for Global Development recently released a working paper exploring the digital governance innovations in India. And Krishna District in Andhra Pradesh has been recognized as a leader in the area of digital governance reforms. The working paper identifies sort of four ways that this district stands out. And the first is that digital ID is widespread. So Aadhaar, which is India's unique digital ID system, is held by virtually all residents and integrated into the public programs. The other um, way is that there's a lot of user choice via portability. So, for example, Aadhaar verification of grain deliveries has been introduced throughout the subsidized ration supply chain. And this means that beneficiaries can collect their food rations from any service point in the state. Additionally, there's accountability for service access. So this includes the use of iris scanners as a backup or and clearly mandating certain individuals to authenticate on behalf of beneficiaries in the event that technology fails. And finally, there's also user feedback and real-time governance. So real-time data on service delivery is complemented by feedback through timely beneficiary surveys. So equally important, the main priority that the district has been doing is really about improving service rather than immediately saving fiscal resources. This is already a great story, Janet. And I think, I mean, Aadhaar has been something of a revolution for for identity and particularly in India. So it's the fastest to 1 billion, having done that in five years and beating Android by like six months in, in achieving that. So to now see it being used more and more is, is really great. That said, you know, there's still a, a bunch of people who are skeptical and, you know, who there, there's a court case going on in the Supreme Court where people are questioning the, the use of Aadhaar. So what other areas of concerns did you come across? Yeah, so the authors did identify a few areas for improvement. One is remote biometric authentication, which is not as smooth as they'd like at this point. The other is around the non-digital processes for enrollment into benefits programs. And these are also slow and reportedly politicized at local levels. And the third is around last mile delivery issues for the banking system. So this sort of inhibits the realization of the full potential of direct benefit transfers. Great. And I just to add on the last point, Janet, it's really the agent network, right? The ability to access the, the and cash out of the banking network. Yeah. Could this be a model for other states and countries? So the authors do raise this question as well, and they identify three considerations that would need to be assessed in other districts or countries. And so the first is around, is this model compatible with social choice? So not every country might be comfortable with the Aadhaar ID system. And the second is around, does the country or district have the baseline capacity to operate such a system? So for instance, a real-time feedback system such as what's in place in Krishna district might crumble under the weight of sort of a high level of failures or complaints. And the third is, is there a political will to prioritize service delivery over other objectives? And unlike many other jurisdictions, Andhra Pradesh has a long history of prioritizing service delivery, um, including, you know, a record of using social audits to monitor quality. So that precedent was there. Great. 
for those of you who are interested, you can li- read the working paper. The link will be in the show notes. This story comes from the next billion. Big data, big opportunity. Is data science the key to universal energy access? In many developing economies, most people in rural areas live data-less lives. But that is quickly changing. When a company sells a Pago solar home system to a rural household, for example, something incredible happens. As a credit check is conducted, granular data about the customer's economic and social situation are recorded for the very first time. As weekly and monthly payments are collected, a credit history is built. This data can be leveraged to improve access to finance, insurance, and other productive and life enriching assets. You know, I find this so exciting. And yeah, I mean, how much has been invested in the sector? Significant progress has been made over the, over the last decade, thanks to progressive investment growth from about $10 million invested in 2010 to $500 million invested in 2018 alone. Wow. Investments in both on and off-grid infrastructure together would need to be twice the current number to achieve sustainable development goals number seven target of universal energy access by 2030. And the problem is 67% of the funds dedicated to Pago Solar have been distributed among only four players. This is limiting the impact of energy distribution while possibly over-concentrating the inherent risks of such enterprises. So how are pay-as-you-go companies using data? One example is BrightLife, which refers its good payers to Finca's microfinancing offering, thus constructing an entire upsell strategy based on data valuation. That being said, the path towards models like PayGo that involve banking the unbanked needs to be transparent and publicly debated. Faulty assumptions, biased credit risk models or risky business practices could wrongly screen out prospects as potential credit risk, denying both further electrification prospects and access to credit to large swathes of customers across rural Africa. But if the sector can navigate these risks, the reward of a data-centric approach could be transformative. Our next story comes from Africa, where the health tech sector reached a milestone this month. So 54Gene, a genomics company focused on African DNA, raised $4.5 in a seed round. And this is the largest amount by a Nigerian health tech startup. Great. And as I understand it, only 2% of genetic material used for pharmaceutical research comes from the African continent. Yeah, that's true. And genetic data on Caucasians make up 90% of the data and samples available. However, Africans and people of African ancestry are more genetically diverse than any other populations in the world combined. So 54Gene plans to change that by building the first and largest biobank of African DNA for the entire continent. Where does the name come from? Yeah, I had to look this up, actually. So 54 is the number of African countries. And, you know, the company focuses on studying diverse African DNA samples to find naturally occurring mutations, which can be modeled as drugs to treat both Africans and non-Africans. 
So the founder believes that African genetic data may hold the key to unlock untold medical discoveries. And there's a precedent to support that. Uh, both an osteoporosis drug and a cholesterol drug were both discovered by investigating genetic mutations in African populations. And how will the company build its biobank? So the company has tested its processes in a pilot program with three local university teaching hospitals in Nigeria, and they are currently collecting data from 10 of the largest research and public hospitals in the country and are expecting to hold 40,000 samples from participants in its biobank. The current focus is on sampling the genetic material of cancer patients, also patients with cardiovascular diseases, and finally, metabolic diseases like diabetes and sickle cell anemia. Great. This is really good news for health tech in Africa. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, compared to recent fintech investment on the continent, 4.5 million doesn't seem like a lot. And in fact, you know, investment in the health tech sector in 2018 was only 1.5% compared to fintech, you know, was at the top at 33% in Africa. So this doesn't seem like a lot, but it does signal how nascent the sector is. And as others have already pointed out, health tech tends to address infrastructure challenges similar to fintech. So it's likely only a matter of time before this sector really grows. We've covered Facebook Libra in the past episodes, but here's a quick update. U.S. lawmakers hammer Facebook exec over Libra's threat to privacy. In a hearing in the U.S. Senate last week, David Marcus, the Facebook executive leading the project, was subject to a five-hour grilling on how the project would protect users from fraud and data harvesting. U.S. senators called the plans unacceptable. Wow. Were there any interesting questions? Yeah, two of my favorite questions. How could the Libra Association, which is the proxy body Facebook has set up to try to deflect fears of its monopolistic control of a global currency, be a not-for-profit organization that also makes huge fortunes from interest on the huge reserve funds that it will hold? Well, Marcus had no answer. The other question was, how could he reconcile the Senate's desire that all this crypto stuff should be primarily regulated by the U.S. when the Libra Association is based in Switzerland and regulated by its authorities? Well, Marcus couldn't explain that either. What about from a U.K. regulatory perspective? Well, in January, the U.K.'s Financial Conduct Authority set out consultation papers on cryptocurrency assets with the final guidance expected to be published this summer. Meanwhile, European anti-money laundering rules, the fifth anti-money laundering directive, will be extended to cryptocurrencies in the coming months with a deadline of January 2020. That said, MPs are also considering whether to investigate Facebook's cryptocurrency. Huh. So all this to say that Libra is massively under the scanner and has brought attention to other cryptocurrencies as well. Facebook Libra's announcement could not have come at a better time for regulators who, after years of relative inaction, have taken a tough stance on the planned digital coin.
And finally, last week, the Central Bank of Kenya and the Monetary Authority of Singapore hosted a first-of-its-kind festival, bringing together participants who include visionary speakers and icons drawn from Africa and Asia to forge partnerships and nurture thriving fintech ecosystems. So this was the Afro-Asia Fintech Festival. And they launched a hackathon, a platform for startups to showcase how they're able to address problem statements contributed to the UN SDG and local industry leaders. Applications for the Global Fintech Hackathon in Kenya open until the 26th July, 2019. And you could get funding of up to Singapore dollars, 200,000 to develop a contextualized proof of concept to be deployed within one year from the demo day at the Singapore FinTech Festival. Yeah, and for those of you interested in applying, the link is in the show notes. Great, that brings us to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening. Janet, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, they can find me on Twitter. My username is at Janjir. Great, and I'm on Twitter as well, at RNJ. Thanks so much, Janet. <laughs>